Trinity Church, how are you doing today? Good to see you. I want to welcome you here on this Sunday, especially if you're a guest with us today. I especially want to welcome you. You find ourselves in the fourth week of a four-week series. This is the last week. This month of August, we've been talking about where you fit at Trinity Church. The first two weeks of that series were given over to the idea of where you find a role that, that fits your gift mix fits the way that God has designed you. And now these last two weeks of August, we're talking about a group to belong to, where you find a place to be in Christian community together. So we're excited that you're here today. If you take out your notes, you have a set of notes that look like this in your uh, uh, Trinity this week. If you want to grab that out, have that in front of you. If you have a Bible today, we're going to be in John chapter 17, if you want to find your way there. Uh, John is the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And uh, we'll find ourselves there today. I just want to say about the band, such a great job today. Can we thank them again, the worship team today? <clears throat> a quick thing about that, by the way, just so we always have kind of the right lens. They did such an amazing job, but realize their job, and I know you know this, their job is never to perform for you. Their job is actually to lead you. I don't know if you know that when you come here, you're the choir, That's what's great about this. You are the ones getting to lift your voice and in your mind and your heart be preoccupied with Jesus. And as you're doing that, they're just helping you do that. Some days they help us, maybe better than others. Today was awesome. And so I just want to thank you as you think that through. This is never meant to be a production. It's always meant to be an avenue to help you fix your attention on who Jesus is. And they did a great job leading us that direction today. A couple of things I just want to keep before you. Um, you saw a video a few minutes ago about Chris Simning. By the way, Hilke, you shouldn't have told that secret about this vent. It is of the Lord, and now people know. If you're out there doing this and you're like, Todd seems fine, it's because I am. This is a gift from the Lord for sure. So don't say that next time. That's not helping me. Um, but uh, you saw a video a little bit ago about Chris Simning. Chris is a friend of mine, and uh, even uh, up our, our middle schoolers, I think a summer or two ago at Camp Pondo, uh, Chris was the main speaker. He has just become a dear friend. You will love him. And what I want to put out to you, if you have people in your world who especially would say, there are weaknesses in, in my life that are just so challenging and so overwhelming at times, you need to hear Chris. Because they will walk away, as you will, and going, hmm, I don't have it so bad. And on top of that, look how God uses his, how he um, translates and, and makes available, displays his power in all of our weaknesses. And so you'll be blessed and the people in your life will be as well. So invite them next Sunday. We're going to have a great time with Chris and you will learn to love him just like I do. He's such a good, good friend and a good guy. Also today, um, today and on next Sunday, we have baptism classes. The reason why we're talking about that, when Hilke mentioned our time out at um, Forest Home on the 10th, the, the really crowning moment of that whole experience are baptisms. And so if you're realizing that's really my next step in following Jesus and that idea of going, I want to publicly demonstrate what I have done privately in making a decision to follow Jesus, then getting baptized at Forest Home, that doesn't really get much better than that. So I want to encourage you. That's really what we just ask you to do as a next step is go to our baptism class, be ready for that. And then on the 10th, you can be a part of that group um, if you're realizing that's your next step. What we did last week is we talked about, related to small groups, we said this. We talked about that there is a biblical mandate to be in a Christian community, meaning to be in a series of relationships that you're doing life and mission with. 
We shared that through the lens of the one another's. We found that there are 17 imperative verbs in the New Testament where you are called to live out, you're called to engage the one another's together. And, and the simple question that we posed to you last week is, if you're not in a small group, where do you live those out? Where do you engage the one another's? And, and I would just say, outside of maybe what you did wonderfully today of greeting one another, the other 16 are hard to do and really impossible in this environment at a weekend worship service on a Sunday morning. And we feel okay with that because that's not the purpose of this gathering, but it is the purpose of your small group and how, why you get together. So we kind of talked about that biblical mandate. Today what I want to do is I want to talk about not so much even the mandate to be in some sort of a, a bond of a missional community. I want to show you what that looks like. I want to show you some principles that we can pull from the New Testament that help us understand this is how some of the key things about a small group and how it's supposed to function. And we'll look at that by looking at Jesus's small group. The Bible calls them the 12. He called them his disciples. And the relationship he had with them, the relationship they had with one another, the mission that they would move out into when Jesus went ascended back to the Father. That's the nature of their small group. And there's some things that are very powerful for us to glean from that as we look into that. If you're here today and you're a small group leader, one thing I'd encourage you to do, listen to these principles and simply ask yourself the question, does the group that I'm helping give leadership to, does it look like this? Are these some of the things that are important to us because they were important to Jesus and therefore we want to make them important to us? We're looking at really just one passage today. It's a very unique passage. It's a prayer in John 17. We'll stay right there today, and you'll see where we're going in a minute. Here's our now what idea. This is what we're kind of focusing around today. Jesus' small group showed us how to live in missional community. And as a result of that, those are things we're to model in our lives. Number one in your notes today, Jesus' small group brought him glory. Jesus' small group brought him glory. Let's unpack that. Your Bibles are open to John 17, beginning in verse 6. He says this, I, Jesus speaking, have revealed you, talking to the Father, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given to me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. All right, let's break this down a little bit. This is, John 17 is what we often call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus was one of a kind in every sense of the word. And one of those things was that Jesus fulfilled all three three roles given to the nation of Israel. No one ever fulfilled those three and no one ever will again. Jesus was prophet, priest, and king. And so we call this the high priestly prayer. Priests represented the people to God. So this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is on behalf of the people. He's praying to the father for their well-being moving forward. And so as we look at this prayer today, we're going to see that in it, there's a, the, the flow is even fascinating. John 17 obviously comes after John 16. You're right with me, okay? And we back it up to John 13. This is what we call the upper room discourse, the upper room conversation. And so the context, here's what's already happened just on this night alone, literally hours before, listen to all the narrative that's happened. 
Number one, Jesus has assembled the disciples and he's washed their feet, that of a role of a servant. Jesus has shared with them, this is the meaning behind the elements of what you will participate in after my death called communion. And he, repre- he talks about how the, blo- the, the um, bread represents his body broken, how the juice represents his blood spilt. They don't even have a context, an idea of what that means yet, but he's sharing this in advance. He goes on to tell them that he's leaving them. What are you talking about? You're it. You're our leader. I'm leaving you. He tells them that he's going to give them the Holy Spirit to enable them to do even far greater than he has done. He's the son of God. How is that going to happen? And then finally, by this time, when we pick it up in John 17, Judas has also left to go betray Jesus. So all that's gone on from chapters 13 through 16, and now we pick it up in chapter 17. Chapter 17 is fully devoted to this one prayer of Jesus. And during this prayer, he actually prays for three types of groups of people. First off, in the first five verses, he prays for himself. And this is the kind of prayer he prays. Basically, Father, you sent me on a mission. Help me to complete it. I don't want to fall short. I don't want to pull up before it's done. Second group of people is he prays for what we're looking at today, his disciples, the 12 that he, had, that he had lived life with for three and a half years. And then finally, he prays for those who would believe in the testimony of the disciples moving forward. I, I want you to catch this. I don't know how much, if you've come across John 17 before, I don't know how much you've let that kind of percolate a little bit. Hours before Jesus was gonna go to the cross, Hours before he would pay a debt you could never pay. Hours before he would be the ransom that would turn back the wrath of God that you and I deserved. Jesus prayed for you. There should be something powerful that settles in your soul on that. That knowing what Jesus, he knew full well what he was about to face. He took the time though to say, Father, for those who will place their faith in me because of the testimony of these, my disciples, I pray for them. Man, that should do, that's powerful to stop and think about. In that moment of his life, Jesus paused to pray for you. And that's just really cool. But it has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Okay, so back to the text. Look at the prayer now about he's praying for his disciples. Here's a few things. He begins with a very... um, understated or a very clearly stated position of humility because he begins with this idea he's talking from the reference point of a son addressing his father and he recognizes that the disciples he's praying over in this moment that these followers were never really so much his as much as they were the fathers that were given to him Jesus notes numerous times the relationship he has with the father that he's dependent upon the Father, that his followers, this, the members of his small group, as it were, are from the Father, and that it's the Father's words that he's simply given to his followers to believe and to accept. I don't know how much you think of this lens. Jesus is our perfect example in everything. Everything he did, everything he said are examples for us to walk and live in. We'll never live them out completely, but we will live towards them. And by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we will live more and more like him. But watch this. The actual nature of the relationship, I wouldn't want you to take away from John 17 that Jesus was somehow lesser. Because in his very essence, the first member of the Trinity and the second member of the Trinity were co-equal. There's nothing lesser about Jesus, but look at what he does. Look at what he does for our benefit. 
He takes the nature, the very beginning of his earthly ministry, all throughout his life, he took the relationship of son to father. Why? So that you would know what it looks like to be a son or a daughter of the father. Jesus became one of us in every single way. And he does this. He takes on this relationship to model for us so we would know what it looks like to address and live out our father's design just like the son did. And what is the son? What has Jesus sought to do? He sought to represent the father. He wants to show them the father. So he completes that saying that we say often, like father, like son, that's who Jesus is. If you want to know who God is, look at the life of Jesus because he was the perfect representation. So what in turn does Jesus note that his disciples have done with his words and his ways? In this prayer, As he's praying for them, what does he recognize? He says that they've demonstrated themselves to be the father's father's followers, that they've been true to him because they followed his son. Think about this for a moment today. Some of the tags and titles that we use, I just think sometimes we throw around so thoughtlessly, just just kind of randomly. For instance, if you were here today and you would say you'd call yourself a Christian, The word Christian just literally broke down means little Christ. And so it would be that who is a follower, someone who mirrors a life after. And like we just said a moment ago, we're not talking about someone who does that perfectly in every situation because we still live on this fallen planet and fallen flesh. But we are saying that the nature of your life looks like Jesus, hence the name. Some of us prefer a name because the word Christian gets so muddied in a culture today and literally around the world. We've chosen other names like Jesus follower. I love that phrase. But can I say this? Inherently within the phrase Jesus follower is that you're following Jesus. I know, rocket science going on at Trinity Church today. But track that though, just for a second, how easy it is to apply a tag. I'm not worried about your neighbor. I'm not worried about your extended family member. I'm not worried about who you're sitting next to. Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror for yourself and simply ask the question. If I'm saying I'm a follower of Jesus, yet the evidence of my life, what does it look like? That's a very fair question to ask yourself or me to ask myself consistently. Because by the very nature of the word, it means I'm living a life that looks like Jesus. What I want you to see most in this prayer is the end result. The end result of the disciples' obedience and the followership. It was the very last line, Jesus receives glory. Jesus receives glory when they live this way within their small group. And and isn't that awesome? Isn't that a great thing that Jesus receives glory? I think it would be more awesome if we knew what the word glory meant. See, I've told you this before. I, I've grown up in a church environment my whole life. I'm a lifer, and I don't say that negatively. It's just the way that God has seen fit. And within that, this is what happens when you've been around churchy terms your life. You hear them, and everyone around you seems to know what they mean. So it seems foolish to ask, what does that word even mean? But we just keep saying the words like we do know what they mean when we don't. Glory is one of those words that for many of us, we sing it, we say it, but we're not really sure what does it really mean. And can I be real honest with you? I don't always know exactly what it means. So I did some homework. And here's what I found for you and what I found for me. In your notes or up on the screen, you're going to have a quote from a guy named Bernard Ram. He's one of the few who put together a systematic word study of the word glory all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testaments together. And he develops 
this concepts for us so we can understand more what it means. The Hebrew word for the word glory is the word kavod. Kabod is what it looks like. You've heard that word before, right? Ichabod, the glory has gone. We find that from 1 Samuel chapter 4. But kavod is kind of the, the Hebrew word. Listen to what he says about this. He says, whatever possessed weight in the sense of dignity was called kavod. Kavod refers to that which is fundamentally perceptible or ostentatious. You can see it. Thus it means splendor, show, honor, conspicuousness, even beauty. A man's wealth, this is the illustration he's going to use, a man's wealth, the insignia of his wealth and the pomp of his surroundings were called his kavod. In other words, the overall impression of a rich man with his garments, jewels, attendants, etc. is the rich man's Kavod. So here would be the idea. You would see someone maybe walk into a room and you wouldn't know anything about him, but when you would see his garments, his jewels, his attendants, it would be right to assume to see within that the evidence of his wealth. That's the word kavod. Kavod literally means weight. And I've known that all throughout Bible college and seminary, but still couldn't figure out what does that mean about God, that he's weighty. And so does that just mean he's got a lot of girth? I mean, what are we talking about? What's the word weight mean? And it means this idea of the weight of his essence. So here's another way of saying it. John Piper, he's talking about this idea. He's defined earlier in this uh, quote I'm going to show you that holiness is God's otherness, that he is supernaturally and rightly so separated from us because he's altogether different. But see what he has to say about the nature of the word glory. He's referencing Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, Holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with his glory. And this is what he says. Intrinsically holy, intrinsically holy, and the whole earth is full of his glory, from which I stab at a definition by saying the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. Watch. It is going, the going public of his holiness. It is the way he puts his holiness on display for people to apprehend. So the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. I got to tell you, this is so helpful to me. Because I say words like glory on and on, but I don't even know what is it actually when you boil it down, what are we talking about? Look in your notes. This is one example. When you do life in community with other Jesus followers, corporately following his words and ways, watch this. You put the holiness of God on display for others to see. That's not the only way you bring God glory, but it's one of them, one that we see in this text, that when you live out Christian community following the ways and the words of Jesus in community, you bring glory. You put his holiness on display for others to see. That is powerful. And now that ratchets up the value of living in missional community all the more. God gets great glory when you live this way towards other people. That's so cool for us to see. Number two in your notes today, Jesus' small group had a supernatural unity. Jesus' small group had a supernatural unity. We're continuing on. The very next verses in John 17, verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they, these disciples, are still in the world, and I am coming to you, talking to the Father. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. By that name you gave me, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Referencing Judas. 
So here's what we see. We could say so much about just those two verses, but I really want to dial in on that one phrase, so that they may be one as we are one. The essence of the Father to the Son was a oneness. And Jesus is saying, my goal is this, the kind of unity that they would possess, the unity they would live in would look like the unity that we enjoy. Now all of a sudden we go, whoa, that's a high calling. In my 46 years on the planet, I've been involved or seen from a distance more division within Jesus's body than I would ever have cared to. And it is a sad, sad thing. One of the things that's powerful about this particular passage is that this passage calls for and, and, and gives the, um, the underlying value of our oneness. I want you to hear this today for, for you, for you and I. If we would name Jesus as Lord, if we would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, here's what I want you to understand. We don't have to try to create or manufacture unity. It's already there. What we have to fight to do is preserve it. But you don't have to be creative to try to figure out how can we have unity together. We already do. His name is Jesus. Jesus is why we rally together. Jesus is why we meet in this kind of community weekly. Jesus is why you would meet in a missional community we'd call a small group. He is what brings us together. So think about it. Think about Trinity Church for just a second. What, what joins us together? What are the things that are our commonalities? It's not our common ethnicity that joins us. It's not our common economic status that joins us. It's not our common political affiliation that joins us. It's not even our common alignment of a particularly favored team between the USC and UCLA rivalry even though we know one is far superior than the other, (laughs) there is a place for you here, brother and sister. It just seems so right, right? Watch this, see this. Whether it's here at Trinity Church or another local church you've been a part of before, process this just for a second. If you've been a part of of other Jesus followers who, who get together, call themselves the local body of Christ, the more diversity you have, The more diversity in these lesser things, I'm not saying they're not important, but they're far less than the unity we have in Christ. The more diversity we have in the lesser things as a group of people who call themselves Jesus followers and gather together, the more the world sees there's something fascinating about them that I can't put my finger on. They don't look all alike. They don't all have the same economic standing. They don't all have the same political affiliation. And on the list goes, why in the world do they gather together? Because Jesus is what is our center. Jesus is our focus. And all those lesser things don't matter when it's in relationship to him. The world looks at that. They have no idea of what to pin that to. No idea of what to reference that to other than Jesus must be something unique that we don't know about. That's exciting to me as I think about the future of Trinity Church. The way that we would want to more and more say, Jesus is what draws us together. Other things are lesser. Jesus is why we have this supernatural unity. Now, it's one thing for a local church to demonstrate that kind of unity and diversity, but what does it look like at a small group level? What does it look like when you bring it down? Now, though all of Jesus' small group had the same ethnicity, they were all Jewish, That's about the end of their commonness. 
their commonality. Four of them were fishermen, blue-collar fishermen, who made a life out on the lake. They stunk, and people didn't want to be around them, okay? Two of, of the group of 12, there were two sets of siblings. Other than that, none of them were related to one another that we know of. Two of them had their mom ask Jesus to be favored among the 12. That went over really well, right? One of them was always introducing people to Jesus. It's super inclusive. I love every time you see Andrew in the Gospels, he's always bringing someone to Jesus. Another one of their group was always doubting what Jesus was saying. We, name him, we know him to be Thomas. Watch this. One of them was a former political turncoat. Matthew was a former tax collector. And what you have to understand, we can't begin to fathom the idea of Rome dominating Israel like anything today. In these United States of America, we have no idea of what another group literally lording over us, what we will do and how we will act. Matthew worked for the domineering other nation, that of Rome, until ultimately he put his faith in Jesus and began to follow him. He left that, but watch. Matthew was a part of this group that any red-blooded Jewish man would have said, you're absolutely a turncoat. You lived for the other people who taxed us well beyond whatever was reasonable. But not only that, within their group, there was another named Simon. Not Simon Peter, but Simon known as the Zealot. Zealots did this. They were fanatics for the cause of Israel, and they inflicted violence on the nation of Rome. That's about as polar opposite, politically speaking, as you could be. I work for the bad guys. I beat up the bad guys. Yet, they found unity in following Jesus. One of them would betray them all. This was the essence of Jesus' small group. These were the personalities. So we see that Jesus' small group was pretty diverse, and you know this, so is yours. The more you get to know each other, the more you hear each other's stories and backgrounds, the more you go, yeah, there's some really powerful differences between us, but not the kind of power that divide us, the kind of power we appreciate. Because Jesus is the reason we keep focusing together. Finally, number three today, Jesus' small group was rooted in reaching. Jesus' small group was rooted in reaching. We're continuing on, verse 13. Jesus speaking, I am coming to you, talking to the Father. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Watch this. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. We have been ramping up I have been at least for the last probably eight months to September the 10th. It's been a red letter day on my calendar for that long of a time. Getting so excited on finally being able to pull back the curtain on a, a mission that will unite us and move us forward. A mission that I think is so grounded in what Jesus said mattered most. And we've been using, we've been kind of teasing out this idea of rooted and reaching over the last few months. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be rooted in Jesus reaching our worlds? And we'll lay that out. I can't wait to get there next month. But for now, for today, let me give you another taste, another piece of that story. 
This passage demonstrates the essentiality of both of these aspects for the Jesus follower's life. So as he's concluding this part of the prayer for the 12, he prays for them in a way that will sustain them as they engage the mission he's setting them on. You have to see this. Jesus is super clear in this prayer. I'm sending them out, but how am I sending them? As they're grounded, as they're rooted, as they're sanctified. Verse 17 in that sequence, sanctify them by the truth. In other words, sanctify is the verbal form of the noun holy. I mean, let me tell you what I mean. If, if I were to say to you, I'll message you later on today, I'm taking a noun, the word message, and I've turned it into a verb. I'll message you later. So the word sanctify means to make holy. Something that is holy in and of itself, this noun form or an adjective form, to make something that is the word sanctify, to set apart for this purpose. If you have a Bible that has a footnote at the bottom, like mine does, it might say this, hagiatso, that's the actual Greek word. It means to set apart for sacred use. To set apart for sacred use, to make holy, to sanctify. So Jesus knew that an essential aspect of his small group's nature would be that they would be holy like him. This was expected. This was an an imperative piece to the idea. I'm a firm believer of the phrase, you can't give what you don't have. So that to model a life, to be in nature like Jesus means I can represent him to my world. To not be like Jesus means I I can just talk, but I can't show. I can't display or demonstrate anything beyond maybe some words I've memorized. It would be their acceptance and obedience to the truth, the word of God, that would cause them to be set apart. By the way, it wasn't about how religious they would be. It wasn't about how many services or gatherings they would attend. But they'd be transformed by the truth that had the power to change them. In other words, they would be rooted in the person of Jesus. Just like we sang earlier today, who is the way the truth, sanctify them by the truth and the life. So being set apart for what purpose though? To be transformed and then removed from the world, kind of put up on the shelf? No, just the opposite. To be transformed and sent. Look at that phrase. As you have sent me into the world, in the same manner I have sent them into the world. In your notes, Jesus' small group was set apart for a sacred purpose for the purpose of being sent out into the world, their worlds, with his great news of rescue and redemption. So Jesus commissioned them. He sent them with a purpose of being a reaching people, a reaching people engaging and continuing the mission that he began. Here's how this lays out. Here's how this applies to your small group. Your small group, for a group of people who take this rooted and reaching idea seriously, Root in the idea that they are individually throughout the week. Sinking roots deeper into the person of Jesus as they get to know him for themselves. And then out of that rootedness, they are reaching out into their relational worlds. They're living the life of intentional influencers because they want people that they do life with to know the Jesus that they know. People who have been supernaturally and strategically placed in their world, they are living outwardly. And guess what your small group becomes for people who live like that? It becomes a support group for intentional influencers. People who are saying, you know what? In this walk with Jesus, 
man, I am, I am growing and learning these new truths that I want to have an opportunity and, and a, a venue to be able to talk and share and break this down. In the lives of people that I'm praying for, I'm reaching into, man, they are struggling with issues that are keeping them and drawing them away so far away from Jesus. Would you pray with me as I pray for this person? Encouragement to keep going on as someone shares in a group that night, this is what God is doing in the life of this person I've been praying for and being intentional about. Guess what? You walk away encouraged. Maybe God could use you too. That's what a small group becomes. It doesn't mean that's the only thing a small group becomes, but it begins to reflect a new dynamic. We are intentionally influencing our worlds, and yet we get to come back together to be recharged. We need a haven, a place that we can come and share and pray together and be sent back out to live this way again. And by the way, when your small group begins living this way, when you come back together and you share about what God is doing in people's lives, when you come back and pray together for people that you're so burdened for, your small group engages a new dynamic like you've never known before. You don't come up with reasons of why to miss a Tuesday night. You can't wait to get there to hear what God is doing in people's lives. That's what we become. That's how we live a rooted, reaching life, and that's why small groups are so essential to the ability to do that. Today, you have this opportunity. Some of you last week, for a host of reasons, looked at the Small Group Expo. It's this uh, map that's in your worship folder. And you took a look and you're like, you know what? I just am not sure. That's fine. I, I really love for people to process and to pray over decisions before just jumping out. But you've had a week to do that. So that's me via the Holy Spirit telling you, a week's good. You're ready. But out today at the, at the expo under the pavilion, I want you to go back. If you didn't sign up for a group, take a look. Prayerfully look over these options and opportunities and consider, God, where would you want me to plug in? Where would you want me to have a place to bring you glory? To have a place to evidence your supernatural unity? To have a place to be encouraged as being an intentional influencer? Take that seriously today. You'll have time. Um, usually we're done about 10.45. We're breaking 10 minutes early, so you have plenty of time to go look before you ever would need to pick up your kids. For those of you, let's say, that are already in a small group of some sort, would you just do that? Would you just have a great conversation here, wait until 10.45 to pick up your kids so we can kind of release them all at once? And just remember, Jesus' small group, it gave us such great lessons, such great principles to know how to live in missional community. We want to live that way this year ourselves. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you today and thank you for your wisdom. Thank you because you know intricately how we are made. You know so much that we were built for relationship with you vertically, but we're also built for relationships with one another horizontally. And God, that need for a community to practice the one another's with, that need to have a community to, to continue to root deeply in you and to be reaching out into our worlds God, small groups are so essential and vital to that peace. I pray for those who are hesitating, for those who have a, a long list of excuses and explanations I could never know. But God, I just pray that you would connect dots and help people see the value today of being involved in a group where they can live in missional community. You may be here today and you would say, you know, Todd, this whole thing about following Jesus, uh, we were talking about looking in the mirror. If I'm honest with myself, 
it may or may not be a tag I've used about myself, but the reality is the same. It's just not true. I'm not following Jesus in my life, and not just in one area or here, the totality. And I have great news for you. If that's who you are today and, and you find yourself here at Trinity Church, the great news is you can do something about that. It doesn't require going to a class. It doesn't require jumping through a bunch of hoops. It just simply requires you being honest with God and beginning with A, admit. Admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B, believe. Believe that this Jesus we talked about, the one-of-a-kind son of God, believe that he lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death. He was raised supernaturally on the third day. Believe Jesus is the only savior available. And C is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, you have given me your life as an example. I want to walk in your steps and I want to walk all the way home to heaven because that's what is yours when you put your faith in him. Make that decision today before you leave. Father, we love you. We are so grateful for what you're doing among us. We look forward to what you have in the future. We pray in your great name today, amen. Before you go, if there's anything we can be praying for you about, even before you leave today, myself and some others will be down front. Otherwise, have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.